Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the next great home and commercial commodity on par with baking soda. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, disinfection, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at HOCLA.org. My guest today is Catherine Brown. If you don't think of sales as an honorable profession, you haven't read Catherine Brown's new book, How Good Humans Sell, The Proven Path to B2B Sales Success. Released in May 2021, the book combines best sales practices with social psychology principles. It can be used in combination with other sales training programs to help sales professionals overcome the hesitation that keeps them from closing more business. A veteran of 25 plus years of B2B selling, Catherine understands what it means to start and build a business during challenging times. She launched her first sales consulting firm in 2003 and now runs the sales training firm Extra Bold Sales, where she coaches others to sell with confidence. Her sales system includes psychology research that gets at the heart of why people don't sell effectively. She also trains on the reasons people buy. It's not what you think. Her process helps business owners take the frustration and worry out of business development so they can close new business without wasting money on one-size-fits-all sales training. Catherine lives in Texas with her family and her boxer, Penny. She loves taking Penny for walks, reading, planning her next globetrotting adventure, watching sci-fi, and hosting dinner parties. She has a BA from Rice University and is a StoryBrand certified guide. Thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm a fan of the podcast, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. So take me back. How did you first get into B2B sales? Yes. When I graduated college, I thought I was going to be a professional musician all the way through university. And I decided I did not want to do that professionally. I started temping. And through that temping process, trying different jobs that were very short-term contract positions, I realized that I thought I would enjoy being a recruiter. So I was actually, my first two jobs out of college were to be a technical recruiter. I was in-house recruiting consultants for these consulting firms. And I started to realize when I watched the 
other operations inside the firms, I realized that I was selling. I really was, in a sense, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> selling that someone would come and work for us and determining really whether that was a good fit or not. And then I realized that there would be other opportunities to be promoted and to be launched from there. So I started on the very people intensive referral based recruiting side of things. And then it evolved into more traditional selling of products and services like you might think if someone tells you they're a salesperson. And so why do you think people have such a negative impression of sales, even if they are salespeople themselves? So there are several reasons. I love this question because I don't even know. There probably are a hundred reasons, but I'll name a couple. I think that sometimes they have a negative impression of sales because they have had a memorable bad encounter where they have felt like they were being sold to. And then they vow, they you know, ruminate on that incident in their head. They vow to not be that kind of person. And that kind of solidifies the stereotype. See, I knew it. Like there's movies about it. There's, there's books about it. People joke about it. But yeah, I experienced that too. That was terrible. I don't want to, salespeople are bad. I think there's also a basic psychological thing that goes on that even if you tallied all the positive experiences you had as a buyer or seller and all the negative experiences you had as a buyer or seller, I feel pretty sure you're going to have more positive experiences than you would negative, but people are wired to remember things that they perceive as a threat. So I think you could make an evolutionary argument. That's what evolutionary psychologists have done. They've said not necessarily about selling, but about many other ways about why we seem to disproportionately remember or anchor on bad experiences. And I think that, I think there could be some of that at play as well. So in a lot of ways, it becomes social conditioning and then entrenched limiting beliefs that sort of take over people's thought processes on this. And then it prevents them from wanting to be sold to or to be able to sell effectively. Is that sort of your- Exactly, exactly. And then on top of that, Pacifico, I think what happens is as soon as you determine that you think this way about something, it could be about sales, it could be about another person, it could be anything else about implicit bias, right? It could be anything, any idea. As soon as you dig down and, 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 and determine that is really what you think, then we engage in confirmation bias, which means that we go and unconsciously are looking for evidence to prove our theory so that we can be right. So as soon as we decide that thing is a fact, whatever that thing is, then we see more of that experience more of that and subconsciously are looking for more of that. So the minute you have another negative experience, again, maybe all week long you bought and sold things and had a great week, but then someone was mean to you at the grocery store, you're going to remember that one mean thing at the grocery store because it's proving what you have determined is true, even if statistically it's a very small amount of the time. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. So then, and it effectively becomes like a form of self-sabotage, right? Because you've now got this limiting belief that you want to actually feed into it subconsciously, even if you're not fully conscious of it. So that if you have to go and sell things to someone, but you have this limiting belief that you can't sell or you don't like selling or it's gross or money is evil or whatever the, the particular limiting belief may be, will then actually undermine your ability to sell anything to another person. 
Exactly. I think that so many battles are won or lost in our own head and that the mindset and the belief that we bring to that situation will have so much to do with the outcome. Not, I do have kind of some spiritual and what I call um, affectionately woo-woo beliefs about the energy you project to people and things like that. But even if you don't believe things like that, even if you want me to take you to the lab and have scientific proof of things, there's so many, there's so many studies and so many ways that we see that people do self-handicap and get in their own way as soon as they determine something is simply true about them. We we make meaning around us all the time. We have to interpret our circumstances. I think people are doing the best they can, but unfortunately we bring all those biases to every situation. And then we actually create reality because if we're feeling insecure, invariably we're going to sound weird on the phone, which is probably going to make the call not go very well, which then means that we get to be right about that because see, I knew it wouldn't go well. And then starts that vicious cycle again and again. And so one concept you talk about in your book, which I found so fascinating, is that it's actually selfish to not sell to people and to not follow up if you have a thing to sell to them. And so that you're actually making a decision for them, which you characterize as a misuse of your power. Can you speak a little bit more about that concept? Sure. So I want to differentiate and make sure this is clear to the readers who have not had the opportunity to read the book. When I'm talking about a misuse of power or I'm talking about what is selfish, what I, I don't want people to hear is I don't presume for one second when I get on the phone with a potential client, even if they're a referral, let's say they set schedule themselves through my website to have a 20 minute call with me. They answer two or three questions about what this is about, or they've been referred by an existing client. I have a general, very broad sense of why they want to talk, but I don't know much. The goal of that call is not for me to close them because I don't have enough information to know if that's the right thing to do. But the goal is to understand their goals, understand what they want to accomplish, get a sense of their timing, determine, we would say in sales and marketing language, we would say, we're trying to understand if it really is a sales lead because this is a fairly urgent issue or if they're kicking tires and doing research for later. And so this is actually a marketing lead, which is fine too. We need to know those things during the call. So I think where the selfishness comes in that I see over and over again is when people, let's say we have the discovery call, it goes pretty well, we agree to a next step. And for some reason, that person has to reschedule or I have to reschedule. And then begins the back and forth on when are we going to talk again? Or let me give you another scenario. Someone comes in through your website and they have downloaded a lead generating PDF or they've watched a video or they've indicated they want to talk to you and you're trying to set up a call to talk with them. When you give up too soon, when you start to decide what they didn't get back to me and I left a message and if they were really interested, then they would talk with me. I, I'm being a little bit provocative to say it's selfish in the sense that I don't think people are trying to be selfish, but I want the seller to understand that the sales power that they have for good is that in their own mind, if they can understand that person is busy, that person has, that prospect has a lot going on. You don't even know if they got your message. You do, you do not decide for them that they're not interested or that they change their mind or, or that they just don't want to, they don't want to let you down. So they're avoiding, you don't know. 
you don't know what's happening. And so you have all this power inside yourself to make every sales situation that you're in means something. And I want people to teach themselves with practice. And I modeled this some through the book, but I want them to practice making it mean very little until the person tells you that their situation has changed. That's where there's a lot of power. And I want people to understand how much agency they have to serve others if they don't get in their own way by making up a story. And so how can sellers overcome these you know, personal limiting beliefs about selling or making money and so on? I think that doing an inventory, one of the things I have my clients do is to do an inventory of several things. You can literally sit and make a list. So this is something your readers could do for fun over you know, with a cup of coffee over the weekend. Sit and make a list first of all the things that people have said to you about why they bought. What did they perceive the benefit to be? And try to remember their words. Go back and read your reviews. Look at your LinkedIn reviews. Look at your Google reviews. Look at the way you were introduced if someone referred you to someone else and literally make a list of those words. Then on that same list, now you can pivot and make a list of all the ways that your product or service made that person more comfortable, have higher status. So maybe adopting your technology was so good for their department that person actually received a promotion. There could actually be status associated with this or how it made them feel more secure. Comfort, status, and security is a Venn diagram that I talk about. I call it the motives and values power list. If we're looking at all those reasons that people buy from us that are not actually about the product or service, but are the benefits they receive via the product or service, all those words can go on the list too. And I just literally, this last week, Pacifico, I had a group coaching. I was taking people through. Everyone made this list themselves. Then we went around on the Zoom call and each person added to the list on behalf of the other people that were there. So they got even longer and said, oh, I've heard you say this. And isn't this also why someone would buy and make this long inventory list? And that is one example of an exercise that has helped people have something to go back to and look at when they feel nervous and say, I do all these things. I did do all these things for these people. There's many other techniques as well, but that's something that comes to my mind that is a practical takeaway that someone can do even today. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So what is it about sales and the sales profession that you love the most? It's a success tool to something bigger. Whether you are a bookkeeper, whether you are selling jewelry through a direct sales company, whether you are an attorney, whether you actually working with a client right now that is a direct primary care practice, they're actually physicians, right? No matter what it is that you offer to people, if you understand how that product or service fulfills your customer and helps them have a better, bigger, fuller, more abundant life, then it's very rewarding because it gets to those big why 
questions, W-H-Y questions. Why is what I'm doing here on the earth important? Why is what I sell important? Why does my work matter? And I think everyone wants their work to matter. And so it's so fun for me to, and it's a little bit tiring occasionally to tell you the truth, <laughs> but it's mostly fun. <laughs> it's mostly fun to me to have people go through some kind of a personal transformation where they realize that they're not selling at someone or to someone. They are for someone and that what they are offering, if it's the right time for that person, that thing itself is a success vehicle to who that client is trying to become. And that matters. That's work that really matters. So what do you see as the biggest mistakes that people make when they're selling something? Number one is giving up too soon because you make someone else's inaction mean more than it does. So one of the things I talk about in the book is I give a live example where I was sure within 24 to 48 hours that I was going to receive a confirmation and a deposit on some training. And I really thought I was going to win the work. This is a <laughs> this story is only a couple of years old. It's not that old. So I'm not talking about when I was selling and I was 25. This is something that happens all the time to people and still happens to me. I sent a proposal over. I expected it to be signed. I didn't hear from them. I did my regular follow-up. I didn't hear from them. I varied my methods of follow-up. I didn't hear from them. And then those inner voices started talking and I started to second guess myself. So one of the things I would want your listeners to know is that this happens to everyone, even very seasoned salespeople. The difference between me and many others is that I do have the tools to recognize when that's happening to notice that I'm giving someone else's action or inaction meaning that I don't have to give it. And then I retain my power because I can decide what I'm going to do next. I take total responsibility for what I am going to do next. Giving up too soon is the issue. But what a lot of people, what a lot of people will do is they will talk about the techniques of how to cold call or how to keep going. And I, I do get into that some in the book, but as you've seen, I believe that your beliefs about sales and the mindset that you bring to all of this is equally important because you won't use the tools that a company has given you if you don't have the belief and mindset to go with it. So keeping house and taking care of that inner self-talk so that you do not give up too soon number one thing people can address that will help them be more successful. Very powerful. Thank you so much. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Oh, my goodness. So failure is a real interesting term for me. I have had a realization as an adult, that word is fairly loaded and fairly triggering for me because I think growing up, I think I had, I felt a lot of pressure to be a high performer. And I think that I'm probably in good company. I know some of my clients have shared this with me too, that if you don't notice that runaway self-talk in your head, like I was talking about a few minutes ago, you might not recognize if 
you make failures mean more than they should mean. I think I have done that in the past. So I'm attracted to language like, you don't really fail, you learn, and we grow in our trials, we don't grow during our successes, all these things like that. And I'm not minimizing those. I think those things are all true, but I didn't really believe them. So I'm going to say my favorite failure is <laughs> the ones that happened this week or the ones that are even to come because I'm on a journey of receiving that feedback, pivoting, learning from it, putting it in the past and moving forward and not making that whole experience mean more than it needs to mean. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think that's fantastic. I think if you're a real high performer, this is a threat to you, or it could be a threat. Mm. To you. And I have felt that way before. I have noticed, gosh, I'm putting so much pressure on myself about whether I'll make the right decision. And now I have the tools to realize are you acting this as a pass fail test and that those are the only options? What if you mm. were this as an opportunity? And so that's a real, that's a real progress for me to reframe that because this has been a challenge for me in the past. Yeah, to be able to step out and think more broadly about where things could go rather than just that binary option. Because if you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, you read things that say things like you need to fail fast or a person, uh, the most successful person has actually probably statistically had the most failure, kept going. It's like these things in your brain, but when you're the one experientially who is saying that really stunk, that was really sad or whatever the issue is, then you have to work on those self-management tools to reframe, receive the feedback, incorporate what you need to change, pivot and, and start again. And no one can do that for you. You are the only one who can do that. Oh, absolutely. So what are bad recommendations that you hear in your area of expertise? Oh, I love that question. I really dislike the expression. It's a numbers game. Sales is just a numbers game. Now, I realize that might sound contradictory to what I said a few minutes ago, so let me explain. I do think that I do think business owners, entrepreneurs, sales professionals, I do think they give up too soon when they are selling. But I think that we want to work smartly. And so I think you would say, just like the sports expression where you'd say, it's not just practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. So you need great copy, right? You need to be able to clearly explain how you can help and why people should buy from you. You want to work smartly, but there are the, all these, my, my industry is just full of all these pithy expressions that I think are really unhelpful. Another I don't is I also think it's bad advice to be constantly telling people buy emotionally and frame logically. That really rubs me wrong. I feel like it's dismissive of the person or belittling about the emotional side of what people want from a purchase. And maybe that's not the intent the person has in sharing it. I, I know that they, I've heard other trainers use this. And what they're trying to do is, is acknowledge that there's two sides to the equation. But I think that I think it's an unhelpful way of framing because it's very binary. And when I hear that expression, people buy emotionally and justify logically, 
to me, it feels the person doesn't have agency or they're just carried away with their emotions. And I don't mm. think that's the way we want to think about it. I think we want to understand that a whole person is looking at what does the thing do for me? What will the benefit be I receive from it with my comfort status and security concerns? And then how does it actually work? Is the thing going to solve my problem that is the business problem? So both matter. And I think that we tend to be very simplistic so we can have catchy phrases. Definitely. A couple of great examples. Thank you. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I'm pretty attracted to writings and leaders who talk about every individual taking on total responsibility for themselves. This is compatible with how I have success in sales. This is compatible. You hear people who believe that make that run into all these areas of their life. So health and wellness, their spirituality practices, their relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, family relationships. If you take responsibility for yourself and have good boundaries as well as your own clear goals and vision and desire for yourself and you don't blame others, you can get really far. <laughs> and I think counseling is important. I think pe people have been mistreated by other people. It's not that I don't think people have legitimate challenges or real trauma. I think all of that is also true. But the more responsibility that you can take for yourself to say, what am I responsible for? I cannot control other people. I'm working hard to control myself. That is very useful to me and very attractive to me because I can always ask myself, am I taking as much responsibility for that in a good way as I can? Yeah, that's the one that comes to mind for me. Awesome. So how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your career? Gosh, I think I didn't know I needed them early on. I, I can think of almost every employer before I became self-employed. It could was the owner of the firm or a salesperson who was higher up. They had the next job title or larger quota than I did. I fell into it, but I feel now in my middle years, I am actively looking for this. I don't know about you, but I feel like the longer you live and the more you work and the more you figure out your particular expertise and calling, you hit this rhythm. But then also, I do not want to be the highest achieving person in the room. I want to have people that I look to and follow because I do not want to reinvent the wheel. I want to learn from others. I need feedback. We all have blind spots. And so I feel like I just got lucky when I was younger and I wasn't deliberately seeking it like I am now. Oh, totally get that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and the older we get, the, the more challenging I think that is, right? Because they don't mm. have to be older, but they often will be. And so mm. the older we get, the smaller the pool of possible people get. <laughs> <laughs> 
So tell me, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. Sure. What are the most worthwhile investments? Gosh. So I have three that come to mind. I'll tell you really quick. One is this next year, I will have been married for 28 years. And wow. yeah, it's hard. It's been great, but it's been hard. And I would call that, and we're in a really good place right now, but I've just been through enough hard things because we've been together so long. That investment feels totally worth it. And I can remember times that you're asking if that's true. <laughs> it's, just, it's just difficult. It's just a stressful, difficult time, right? We've had parents die. We've raised two children. There've been just all these you know, challenges that have happened. So that has been totally worth it and very challenging. Another one that comes to mind, one thing you and I have in common is that we both have been through the story brand marketing training. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, the time of the recording right now, I, I am still a story brand certified guide. And that means that I have had a lot of marketing writing training to think about how to help people communicate their sales and marketing messages. That was an investment that I had to make with my own dollars because I'm self-employed and the relationships I've built with like-minded people who love other people through sales and marketing, that that relationship, those relationships have been worth the access to the group. So I've really enjoyed mm -hmm. that. The last example I can think of is I've always invested in being in peer advisory groups. So that's either been a group of female CEOs that meet once a month together, or right now I'm in one in Houston that is men and women across different industries, but you pay to be in a membership group where you can come. It's a closed group to members only, and you can share confidential information and get feedback. And this is a group I go to because they don't always know what I'm thinking and what I mean when I say certain words. So I will use that group for feedback. I will say how, if I offered this course, what did those words sound like to you? Um, what do you think I should do about this or that? And it's purposely cross industry. That has been awesome because I think we learn from having that creativity activated by being with people who are not like us. And I've almost always paid to be in a group like that. Oh, that's definitely a great investment. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice you think they should ignore? Goodness. We have a worldwide shortage of salespeople. This has been well-documented. And so I think I would always encourage someone to, to take an entry-level sales position and, and learn to sell a product or service because most positions require you to be able to interview others, gain consensus, qualify, or ask for a donation, or do something that has some type of a big people interaction like that in the way that in the way that formal selling does. So I think that I think everyone would benefit from that. I think the other thing too is that I think it's a disservice when we tell young people that they need to go find their passion and we act there is a passion singular. 
I think that's very pressuring and unhelpful. I know my sons are young adults now and I know they feel that way. They feel like, I don't know what I want to do when I'm 50. I can't even decide what I'm going to do when I'm 25. So I would like people to have this idea of more like, I read this wonderful book called Design Your Life. And these professors from Stanford put it together. We could put this in the show notes potentially, but they it was such a great resource because they talk about how if you take an approach like a designer where you have to get out there and actually build the thing and experiment and see if the thing breaks, <laughs> whatever the thing is, you have a different mentality of try it on, try it for a while, make adjustments, pivot, change. And we ought to approach everything in our life that way. Like I'm going to do this for a while and I'm going to learn everything I can in it. And I'm going to serve others through this vehicle. And if I want to do something next, that's fine too. And so having that flexibility and not thinking that there's just one thing that will make you happy, I think that would be a real service to people who feel pressured to know that information too soon. Oh, that's great advice. And I was actually talking to someone the other day and they were talking about how life sciences right now is really, you know, pushing on like the longevity side of things. So for kids coming out of college at like 20, you know, 22 or so, that thinking about a 50 year career is actually not going to be the average for them when you get to a point where people are living not just longer, but they're living healthier lives <laughs> longer. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. And, and so his sort of thing was like, hey, think about you're going to have, you could live to 120. So if you have a hundred more years, you're not going to do one career <laughs> for a hundred right. years. So right. just think about the different things, how many times you could reinvent yourselves. There's so many great articles now about, you know, I just saw one the other day about people who invent, reinvented themselves in like their 40s, 50s, 60s. And I've met people that are in their 60s or 70s. And my career looks like theirs, like up to that point in their lives. And then they're 30 years older than me, just reinventing themselves yet again, which to me, like I'm a total reimaginer, reinventor, just okay, now I want to do this thing. And I want to I just love the diversity of experience of life. And the longer you live, the more times you get to change that over. And so I think that's really great advice to show like, hey, there's not just one thing you're going to want to do. There's so many interesting things out there. So just try a bunch of stuff and see what resonates and just enjoy the journey. Exactly. I think one thing that you and I have in common is that I can tell you're very curious. And I think that mm. people, people who are not curious are irritating to me because I don't understand how you could live and walk on the planet and not, not be curious. Now, yeah. to be fair, if you don't have basic food and shelter and you're the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, because you are just trying to survive, you're just curious where your next meal is going to come from. And that's a very serious, that's a very serious thing. So there are people who are under duress who cannot afford to be curious beyond their basic survival. But most of us in the West are able to have all those basic needs met. And I think part of being human is being a lifelong learner, taking in information, trying to assimilate that information, decide what it means, back to our earlier point in the conversation. And I find the people I'm most attracted to and definitely the people I would go to and look for mentoring are, are, are interested, interesting, curious people. And I'm impatient when that's not true. If I'm working with someone, for example, 
who is wants to check the box on sales training, but I find that really they don't have a growth mindset. They really are not committed to taking total responsibility and practicing new things, then that's not a good fit for us. So I, I try to figure that out pretty quickly. Mm. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Yes. So I'm going to name a sales book. And that is the, a book called The Inner Game of Selling. And it's by Ron Willingham. And Ron Willingham died just a couple of years ago. He was a very old man, had a lovely, long life and career, helping all different kinds of businesses sell. And the reason that book was so pivotal to me was because it was the first book I ever read that I noticed. Now, I say this in parentheses, to be fair, maybe there were other things I'd read and I just didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear what they were saying in this regard. But there was something about the first time I read the inner game of selling, the argument they're making is about beliefs and mindset. It started to shape my perspective and realize how much of my own personal and professional development was about what was inside my head and heart and not just the things I do. And when you're a real hard worker, you think, oh, I'll just work harder. But this book is deeper than that. It makes you think through what am I bringing to these situations? What am I expecting? And what do I believe is really possible for myself in terms of financial and relationship and, and people success? So that book was amazing to set me on a different journey. I feel very, I feel very grateful for that. I also, I read a book years ago that I'll reference that has nothing to do with business that's called Stepping Heavenward. It is a, as, as on the personal side of things, it was a book that was given to me in college and it's a fictional diary. It's by a woman named Elizabeth Prentice, P-R-E-N-T-I-S-S. -S. And if the readers go look it up, you're going to laugh because it might be out of print and it's like super old fashioned. It's been out for decades, but it was given to me in college and what is so beautiful about it is it's a fictional diary and it traces the life of a woman who starts out getting a diary for her 15th or 16th birthday. And through her words and her life, she's annoyed with her mom. She likes a guy that's not good for her, you know, and she's, she's writing this diary as she grows up, but you as the reader watch her grow in wisdom and love and grace over her life as she matures and it's so instructional and it's so encouraging about just this, again, this idea of just how people grow and can change and take responsibility and become a different and better person. So I've probably read that book four times and I'm, I'm probably due to read it again because of course, the older I get, it strikes me differently at each stage. So that was a wonderful gift. And I have given that to other people as a gift also. Thank you. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would you say? What would it say and why? I think I would say, believe you can do this. And I would say that because it has been the ultimate compliment to me when people I have met and worked with 
And even just even in my personal friendships, Pacifico, I've been you know, complimented about this before, and I'm so grateful for it. People have shared that the fact that I can see down the road about what a person could become, what something could look like, and help them cast a vision toward that. That is a very easy thing for me to do. I think I'm uniquely gifted that way. And so I know that when I believe change is possible, you can learn to sell better. You can learn to write better. You can learn to live better. Because my belief is so strong for people, I think that belief is contagious. And then people start practicing and modeling the things that we talk about. And then sure enough, they do change. And so I think I would say believe. Oh, I love that. Beautiful. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? My mom was awesome. She's been gone for 10 years now, but this next year will be 10 years that, since she died. But she was really something. I don't think I knew until I had my own kids what it was like for her to work full time and difficult hours and raise my sister and me. She was, in a lot of respects, she was a single mom. I didn't feel like I was shortchanged or missed out on anything because of that. She was really stunning. I now realize as an adult that came at pretty significant sacrifice on her part, just literally physically a toll on her body and lack of sleep and things like that. But she, I just learned a lot about perseverance and grit and kindness. She was extraordinarily kind. And so she was awesome. And I feel really grateful that, you know, that I had her. You can't affect where you're born or who you're born to. So <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get. I feel like I, I feel like I got really lucky in that respect. I've had so, so many others. I think, I think other heroes are, I have a group of friends from college that now we've been friends going on 30 years. And I would count some of them among that number because again, the longer you live, the more you see trials and challenges and illness and disappointments and divorces and remarriages and all the things that happen and people persevere and you see them continue to evolve and grow as a person. And so I feel like on the personal level, I'm extraordinarily fortunate because of some deep friendships I have. And I would count some of those people in that number too. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's so cool. Like when you do get further and further away from those lifelong friends you make when you're younger, and then you see people go off and do like really cool stuff and everything. It's so fun to watch. And it's, I'm really grateful for living in this day and age where I remember growing up, my dad had been like disconnected from his best friend in college. There's no internet. It's like people move away and move, move. Phone numbers change. And you just totally lose touch. We, he randomly reconnected with them. We like went and visited him in Colorado. We did this great road trip, but it's he, they were just catching up from scratch, like 20 years yeah. and versus I've been able to watch dozens, if not hundreds of friends, like grow up, have kids, watch those kids grow up. You know, and it's just, it's been really special being able to have that perspective that was previously completely unattainable for the human race. It's okay, either you stay in the same hometown you grew up in and you can watch all that, but otherwise it's just like these fleeting relationships would just disappear or die on the vine because there was no way to stay in touch. And now like we're so much more interconnected that even though there are like a lot of negative externalities and features to social media and things like that, I think it is like a net 
positive and you do get to maintain those relationships at least some level that was you know previously impossible exactly and i'll tell you too the other thing that i love i am so grateful for is i just think that zoom and really any video communication technology is the greatest thing ever. It's right up there with electricity and indoor bathrooms <laughs> and penicillin. I think it's right up there because I cannot believe how well most people I know have been able to pivot with the rise of COVID and people having to retreat to their homes and all the crazy things that have happened the last couple of years. I have new relationships that have been formed and grown exclusively through that channel. And we have still been able to connect on this human to human level through that vehicle because we could see each other and make eye contact. And it's, it's just awesome. It's awesome. We real quick story of something that was fun. My in-laws are still alive, doing great. They live in another state and for many years, we had a standing call where we would call them on Sunday night, talk on the phone. We'd pass the phone back and forth. Sometimes we'd be on speaker. Then we'd go through seasons where we wouldn't talk quite as often and we'd see each other more in person. And it, we just ebbed and flowed well with the pandemic. We instituted a weekly Zoom call. And the sweetest thing you've ever seen is that my big kids from their remote locations, they will often also dial in. And we're looking at my now elderly in-laws who are staring at the screen huddled in front of the laptop camera. And after week after week, we're talking about what's going on in our lives. And we actually are going to see them later this year. But I think that we will continue this tradition, which began because of COVID, but I think we'll keep what we liked from that whole experience and take it forward with us because we love seeing them and we love the standing date. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's been obviously there's like a lot of people lamenting it, but it has fully enabled us to just keep on going and mm. just be able to pivot. And, and obviously there's like the whole business side of it. But yeah, just having I, I feel like there's a lot of just old friends and other groups like being able to get together that if it weren't for the pandemic, if it weren't for the rise of video conferencing and stuff that it just wouldn't be happening. Someone exactly. exactly. I remember earlier this summer, <laughs> a classmate of mine from high school was like, oh, it's our we graduated high school 20 years ago today. I was just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> just like, oh, Jesus. And you're like, making me feel old. And then people are like, oh, we should like get together on Zoom. We should have this. And being able to have old college friends, you have a dozen people get together on Zoom and just catch up and everything is just, it's definitely really powerful. And it's, I think it's been really interesting too, raising children in this era because it's just table stakes for them, right? Mm -hmm. Like they just have the expectation mm -hmm. of, I can talk to anyone anywhere in the world via video whenever I want. It's I like, know. I grew up without a computer. <laughs> you know, know. Like, I just, oh man, this is like a lot of crazy, crazy developments in 30, 40 years. It's such a great time to be alive. When people say, if you could go back to any time period or live during any time period, when would you want to live? And I'm like, are you kidding right now? Yeah. <laughs> are you Surely you're joking, right? Now, yeah. could, I, could I fly over and visit something very briefly? Sure, I could name a thousand things I'd want to do that. But do I want to live during any other time? No. Way. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I feel like we just have a really warped perspective on how terrible the world used to be because we see all this carnage now because we have the media and global communications to be able to highlight terrible stuff. But it's like, 
before the 1900s, like the world was just constantly at war with itself everywhere. And it was just, it was just like really brutal. And yeah, of course you'd want to be alive now is, and especially if you're not, right. If you're not like a cishet white male, like it just worse for you, the farther back you go. So (laughs) this is the best time for pretty much everyone, even for people who do, struggle because it's like even someone who's in say the lower quartile of income in the u.s right now you're living better than like royalty hundreds of years ago like you have access to all kinds of just total nonsense and they can distract you from whatever else in life that you can still live a really rich life even with very little right Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of research that talks about how the world really is less violent and it really is mm-hmm. it really is safer. And I totally agree with you. I I feel just I feel so fortunate about all of the things we have access to and I just I love my life. I'm so grateful that I love my life. Mm. So tell me, what are some of your go-to self-care strategies, tactics or techniques? Super. So I have one that's fairly recent that I would love to share with the readers. I have gone through periods where I would have time. I would have meditation in the morning or I would journal and I would exercise, but I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I did a reboot after a vacation that I took in the summer of 2021. And I decided when I came back, I was going to reorganize my schedule and I was going to get more serious about my personal and professional self-care because I let some things go during the pandemic, not just health-wise, but even just out of balance kind of decisions, especially too much work. I have a pretty elaborate ritual that is takes me about 90 minutes in the morning, and I do it most days. I try to do it every day, and that is a combination of reading, because I have trouble reading at night when I'm getting sleepy. I just can fall asleep sitting up, literally, so I have to read in the morning. So I have reading, and I have time I write my journal, and I have time for prayer and meditation, and I exercise. And I have just literally pushed my whole day back. And I feel so fortunate, Pacifico, because I can, as an entrepreneur, I can make some decisions about when I will take client calls and what that will look like. And part of what Again, this theme of total responsibility, part of what I realized over vacation was no one is going to do this for you. This is up to you. <laughs> so I have about a 90 minute, I have about a 90 minute routine. And at the end of it, I'm sweaty because I've exercised. So I have to take client calls later. I have to shift my whole day. I can't tell you how balancing that's been for me, how much energy it gives me, not just physically, but just mentally, just to feel proud of myself because I feel like busy, successful. I don't, I'm going to take out the word busy. Let's say successful, visionary, high achieving people. They tend to have routines like this where they do care for themselves. And so I'm really excited that I have begun to implement that. I also get a good bit of sleep. So I require a lot of rest. I always get at least seven hours, but often will sleep eight hours at night. And sometimes I'll even take a quick nap one or both days of the weekend. And I felt embarrassed about that for years. And you'll hear about these amazing people who think that sleep is a waste of time and somehow function on five hours, but I can't, I don't know how they do it. I've tried everything I know to do except, except massive drugs. And so I am more okay with that. And I make that part of my routine and a priority. And I 
then can be the energizer bunny in the day and bring my whole self to people if I take care of myself and do those things. Oh, that's great. Sounds like you've built your own like miracle morning, right? Like how I think was it Hal Elrod was that someone another guest? Yes, like, got I loved that. that book. That was really helpful to me in thinking through this. No, totally. Catherine, this has been such a fun and enlightening conversation, but it does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh my goodness. Gosh, I think I'm going to go back to my parents and say that I think that doing their very best to create opportunities for me at sacrifice to themselves shaped my path. Specifically, I thought I was going to be a professional musician. And so my parents and my grandmother helped too. They spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars from the time I was 12 years old to the age of 22, where I did music festivals and camps and private lessons and and special master classes and travel to all these things and band camps and orchestra and all these things. And I think it was worth every penny because I learned to look for beauty. I learned to be on a stage, which has served me now as a speaker. I learned to practice. I learned to make myself do things that I didn't want to do and do them well. And that was hard for them. That was hard for my parents to make that happen. And so I give the music lessons as an example of the investment that I think many parents try to make in their children. And I didn't do anything in and of myself necessarily to deserve that. I feel like that was grace to me and a gift to me. And so I'm, I, I see that and I appreciate that. Mm, that's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to spend some time with you and your listeners. And I'll talk to you soon. Oh, that sounds great. So today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Thank you.